Welcome to episode 151 of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Beth Bilo, and I am thrilled that you have decided to join me. Thank you for sharing your precious time with me and my guest. Before moving into my conversation with today's guest, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch, I'd like to extend my deepest gratitude to you. You see, this month, May 2017, marks the seventh anniversary, the seventh of the founding of The Introvert Entrepreneur. When I first put my stake in the ground, I knew that the message was going to be important. I just knew that on a gut level. But what I didn't appreciate or could foresee was that it would be not just important, but life-changing. To start with, it's changed my life. It's provided me an opportunity to coach fantastic clients, interview respected experts about their entrepreneurial journeys, engage in fun as well as profound conversations through social media, and to write a book that's reached thousands of introverts around the world. The people who have been part of the introvert entrepreneur community have also let me know that their lives have been changed as well. They are leading more authentically. They're choosing business models that fit their energy, and they're showing up in their work and in their relationships in such a way that aligns with who they are at their core. What I've learned is that we tend to be people that go against the grain, and now we know that we're not alone on that path. We know there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. Introverts flying solo aren't necessarily lonely, but they can feel alone. What I'm most excited about from the past seven years is how many people have joined in the conversation and how much they've supported and encouraged one another to be true to who they really are. We all feel a little less alone when we see someone else has commented, me too, to something that we've shared. I've witnessed it on Facebook and in my virtual book groups and virtual networking events, through the conversations I've had with podcast guests, and at speaking engagements I've done across the country. There's more of a willingness to say, this, being an introvert, is who I am. This is my truth, and I'm proud of it. Thank you for being an active participant in that conversation and for being part of the introvert entrepreneur community. Your presence is truly a gift. As part of my celebration, I want to share two recent reviews left by members of the community. This one is for the podcast, and it was left by a user who goes by the name Proudest Mahomie with a heart symbol afterwards. And this person wrote, This is one of my new favorite podcasts. In fact, I've already worked my way through all of the episodes available on iTunes. Parentheses, I'd love if more of the earlier ones were available. Beth has on interesting, relevant guests, and she's a really good interviewer. Thank you. (laughs) I have found just about every episode interesting, informative, and very relevant to me, a very introverted entrepreneur. Add this to your podcast list for sure. Well, you'll be happy to know that you can access all 151 episodes from my website, theintrovertentrepreneur.com. And in the coming weeks, I plan to make an archive page that will make it easier for you to find episodes for your binge listening pleasure. Right now, you just have to scroll through, you know, older entries um, on the website, and it's not particularly easy to do. So I want to fix that. And I'll share an update on that once it's ready. 
I also want to say thank you to B. Cohen 01, who wrote a review on Amazon titled A Great Book for Introverted Business People. The review said, just finish this book. Loved it. Ms. B. Lowe does a great job of defining the qualities that make us introverts, and yes, I'm an off-the-charts introvert, different, and she offers really good practical suggestions for how to embrace those qualities and make the most of them in an entrepreneurial setting. I love her podcast, and this book is certainly a wonderful extension of the quality info she provides there. I am I am so um, touched when I read feedback like that and so appreciate that um, both of you took the time to share your thoughts. So thank you to Proudest Mahomey with a heart symbol and B. Cohen 01 or 01 uh, for taking the time to share your experiences of the podcast and the book. If you, you the listener, haven't already, I invite you to take five minutes this week to leave a podcast review on iTunes or a book review on Amazon. Honest reviews are incredibly helpful to your fellow listeners and readers in helping them to decide if something is worth their time, their money, and most valuable, their energy. And while I absolutely appreciate knowing what you think about what I share, this is more about doing a favor for your introverted colleagues and friends. Now let's move to the conversation for this podcast. And while I tend to focus most of my interviews and conversations on strategies for building your business, there is always an undercurrent of how you can have a more balanced, productive, and happy, satisfying life. This episode moves that topic from undercurrent to front and center. We're going to focus on the thresholds in our lives and how to navigate them with greater ease. After all, they say that the one constant in life is change. Whether you're experiencing transitions personally or professionally, or both, and often we are, I mean, who's not going through some sort of transition um, at any given time, you are going to find this conversation both comforting and energizing. So let's get to the interview. I'm speaking today with Sherry Hirsch, who is a rabbi, author, and spiritual life consultant. Her mission is to empower individuals to be their own spiritual guides. After eight years in the pulpit, Hirsch left Sinai Temple, Los Angeles's largest and oldest conservative temple, in 2006. Since then, she has published the books, We Plan, God Laughs, What to Do When Life Hits You Over the Head, and in August 2015, published Thresholds, How to Thrive Through Life's Transitions to Live Fearlessly and Regret-Free, both with Random House. In addition to writing, Hirsch has appeared on a variety of national media outlets from the Today Show to Extra. She counsels private clients, speaks nationwide at engagements for corporate and religious organizations, and teaches classes across a variety of themes. Hirsch serves as the spiritual life consultant for Canyon Ranch Properties and as the associate vice president for Jewish education, Hillel International. And as I share in the interview, I met Sherry at a conference in January of 2017 at Seattle University and um, attended one of her sessions speaking about thresholds and the changes that life brings and was so um, touched by her message and just immediately knew that it was something that I wanted to bring to you as valuable information and perspective that might help you to navigate changes in your life. 
Hi, Sherry. Welcome to the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm delighted to be welcoming you to the conversation today. So happy to be here. Thank you, Beth. Well, what is making you smile today? Everything. I, I thought about that question, but what really makes me smile is the way my son gives me a kiss goodbye when he leaves for school in the morning. There's just nothing like it. I have four children. He's my baby. And, <laughs> you know, the baby's the baby. Yeah. How old is he? Seven. Seven. So you've got to cherish that kiss mama goodbye <laughs> for as long as you can, because I, I understand that that doesn't last forever. <laughs> and the truth is, it doesn't last forever. But the nice part is that something as small as just the way a child looks at you yeah. and says goodbye to you in the morning can be enduring for your entire day. Absolutely. Well, I want to start out by um, giving our listeners some context for our conversation and curious about where you know that you fall on the introvert-extrovert spectrum and how has that awareness influenced your path? So I'm absolutely an extrovert by every test out there and every one I've ever taken from you know, those glamour magazines to the more psychological ones, I fall under an extrovert. That being said, I do have a very introspective and quiet side to myself. I meditate every morning. I read every night before I go to bed. And if I don't do those introspective, quiet things each day, I have a hard time making it through my day. But I love people. I love interacting with people. I love everything about them. And I love learning their stories and their narratives. So I know my barista at Starbucks. I know <laughs> the gas station attendant as well as I know my children's teachers. So it's nice. Nice. I love talking to extroverts on this on this show because inevitably they always remind us that just because you're an extrovert doesn't mean that you don't appreciate solitude, introspection, um, reading, all of those things that we often associate with introverts. They're not our exclusive domain. And I love being reminded of that. And it helps us to have sort of a reality check. <laughs> right. And I don't think an extrovert can be 100% extroverted all the time. Mm -hmm. They really do need those moments of respite. I know for myself. But I also know that my introverted friends claim that they never need extrovert personality characteristics, and they do have them. Yeah. So I don't think it's black and white for anyone. Exactly. We're all on that spectrum. And I know that, yeah, we're social creatures. And so I always look at it as it's like, I need a different ratio of that social to solitude than you probably do. Um, but we both need all ends of the, the social spectrum. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to focus our conversation on your most recent book called Thresholds. And um, the way I became acquainted with you was I heard you speak at the Search for Meaning Festival at Seattle University earlier this year. And for anyone listening, not in this year, the year is 2017. And um, I think that's a place where your extroversion serves you so well, because you instantly connected with the audience. And, um, and it was a really, it was a really wonderful, it was the first thing I went to during that festival. And I remember walking out thinking, if that's all I attended, I would feel complete. <laughs> um, Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Oh, you're welcome. Well, you started out, and I, I, I loved this because this is a very sort of introspective way of starting out. You asked us all to close our eyes and to take a mental tour through our home or our living space. And then you asked us to identify our favorite space, like the space we felt most safe and comfortable and at home. And then you asked us to, you know, we after I think we good, spent a good three to five minutes reflecting on that as you guided us through it. And, and then you asked us to share. 
And some of the attendees shared what came up with them. And often it was, you know, my living room, my bedroom, my kitchen, uh, my dining room table. And you noted that no one ever chooses hallways. And I think that took everybody by surprise. And so why, why is that? And what is the significance of the hallways in our lives? So thank you for recapping that. It makes me feel, you know, just nice to hear that you took away meaning from it. But the hallways are very much anecdotally a place where we spend about a third of our time. And the truth is, is that we don't acknowledge them. And I used it as a metaphor for life, right? There are times in our lives where we're very much in a room and we're comfortable and we know what we should be doing and we know how to do it. And it's easy. But there's about a third of our life where we're in a hallway. Essentially, we're betwixt and between, and we don't know where we're supposed to be. And there's a desire to go back and be in a previous room, but we can't go back. And there's an unclarity about where to go next and what room's in front of us and which one's the right room. And so hallways is my metaphor for being in transition and helping people navigate those transitions so that they can live fearlessly and regret-free. Yeah, I, I really, um, and it's it's kind of surprising to me, I would almost guess that we spend half our time there. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that. Would you say that there are times, you know, when um, it feels... I guess, you know, how do you how do you recognize sometimes we might not even recognize we're in a hallway, you know, metaphorically speaking? Well, I think people get confused with a hallway and depression and Mm -hmm. other different states, right, where they, you know, many of us are in a hallway, but in a society that identifies any sort of difficulty with depression and difficulty that we automatically think something's wrong with us. And I do believe there is like physiological depression and I believe in medicines and treating it appropriately. But I often think people come to me as a rabbi and they'll say, my mother died last week and I feel sad. Do you think I'm depressed? Mm. And to be sad at your mother's death a week after is a normal, and I use that word liberally, but it's an appropriate reaction to the loss of a parent. It doesn't mean you're physiologically depressed. It doesn't mean that you require medication. Depression happens to about 10% of the population. Sometimes even the numbers range from seven to 10%. And it's often overdiagnosed in a case where it's really just transition and that we are uncomfortable and we are having difficulty and we have to learn to get comfortable with the discomfort. Yeah, we have such a story around um, not feeling comfortable, or, you know, we're, we're quick to put a label on it. And it's sometimes easier to put a label on it that is something we can, quote, unquote, fix. Well, and also, Beth, our society doesn't give us a lot of room to be in yeah. discomfort. We like to be productive. We don't like ambiguity. We don't like being between things. We don't even say we're between jobs. We mm-hmm. say, I'm a consultant. Right? <laughs> right. We just This idea that we would be betwixt and between or in transition is not something that society supports us. And so, of course, we want to fix it and get out of it immediately because we're not supported in our community. And also people around us, the people that love us most, want us to be happy. So they see us struggling and their first instinct is fix it, make it better, which isn't always the best remedy. Yep. So what do you do if you're in that kind of situation? Like, say you have someone in your life who's going through that tough time. How can you avoid fix it mode? So first thing I ask people is to identify 
what is the discomfort? And can I accept that that is an appropriate reaction to what's going on? So whether it's the loss of a job or transitioning from working to retirement or transitioning from being married to divorce, but even happy things, going from being a couple to having a child to getting a promotion, to recognize that there is discomfort in transition, even the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And to note that it doesn't immediately go away because it's good or because it's difficult. The second thing is to see that as an opportunity to have a respite from the rest of the world. It's always okay to say, I just got this new promotion, I'm in transition, I need to take a step back and really focus on me so that I can get to the next room. So it's a permission slip to give yourself a little break from the fast-paced, constantly checking off things off our to-do list sort of mentality. The third thing I tell people is to seek out other people who have done this transition that are about a step above you, but in your inner circle of five, meaning Don't seek out Jennifer Lopez if she's not one of your best friends, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Seek out someone that has done this and to let them guide you and to say, I need help. We so rarely say, I need help because we think it's a sign that we're weak or that we can't do it or that we should know how to do this, right? The rest Mm -hmm. of the world's had a baby. I think I should know how, but no one knows instinctually how to change a diaper genie. Mm-hmm. That is something yeah. that is taught, right? So you have to ask for help. And that transition and that humility is what's required. You you make me think of this importance of normalizing. And I don't mean that in a diminishing way, but just normalizing and, and that feeling of like, you're not alone in whatever it is that is happening. Um, that it's, like you said, it's normal to grieve after a parent dies, or it's normal to um, feel some sort of sadness at losing a job. Exactly. And I think what's challenging for people is they talk privately to their clergy, they talk to their therapist, they may talk Mm -hmm. to one friend. But we don't talk about these issues very openly. And if you want confirmation of that, just look on Facebook. Right. It'll say, Married for 22 years, every day has been perfect. (laughs) And everybody knows that if you've been married for 22 years, it's so far from perfect every day. I really want Facebook to say, still hanging in after 22 years, (laughs) hour by hour, right? Because (laughs) that's the truth. But we don't often speak the truth. What we speak is we carefully curate how other people, we want them to consume us. And so because it is normal to have grief, it is normal to be in a transition after having a new baby or going into retirement or leaving for college or becoming an empty nester. But the expectation is you get about a week and then you should be done. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, something must be wrong with you. And we are, our DNA does not fix things in a week. Right. That's why I appreciate, you know, authors and, and speakers like you. And and I think of Anne Lamott as being somebody mm-hmm. who's like the, the quintessential messy truth teller. <laughs> I love Anne for that reason. Yeah. Very much. You know, Danny Shapiro, Anne Lamott, people that aren't afraid to show the messiness of life. Mm-hmm. As a rabbi, I, I talk about God and sex and money and death. And I thought at the beginning people were going to have heart attacks every time they went to synagogue. But they kept coming to hear me because they realized 
this is what they wanted to talk about. Yeah. They just were scared. Yeah. And so me bringing it up made it a little less daunting. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think your own transparency with your own journey has been part of what attracts people to the message. And, and, and so what is the most transformative threshold that you have crossed and how has that changed you? I've been asked this question and I've had so many thresholds because I'm able to identify them in many different ways. Mm-hmm. One I would say was my mother's death. She had glioblastoma, which is brain cancer, and she died a very gruesome death because for those of you that know, it's a very violent illness. And during those 18 months, I left no stone unturned, and I talked to her about everything, things I didn't want to talk about, things she didn't want to talk about, but I wanted to bury her with dignity, and I didn't want to leave anything on the table. Now, of course, in hindsight, there's things I still wish... I asked her, one of the things that I say about the transition of living with a mother who I was very close to, who died at 62, mm-hmm. and living without her has been a real threshold, and it's fundamentally changed me on a cellular level. And while we think people experience loss, people lose their parents, it doesn't take away the intensity and the transformative depth of what it means to each one of us. Yeah. Just because, again, you know, just because uh, it happens to everyone doesn't mean it happens to everyone the same way. Exactly. That was beautifully said. Mm-hmm. But we think somehow that it should be mm-hmm. that if you grieve for three months, therefore I should grieve for three months. Yeah. And, but it's not like that. We are as different in our DNA as we are in our transitions. Yeah. Yeah. There's no formula. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, you know, I want to touch on something we were talking about just a moment ago about about change and and this story that we, you know, we have this story that it's really hard. And so we almost never question that. It's almost like, um, oh, we it becomes kind of a default, like when somebody says, how are you? And and we say, fine. Um, We we make this, you know, assumption that um, that change is hard, period. Um, what are some basic steps that we can take to shift our relationship to that and rewrite that story that change, quote unquote, is hard? So it's almost become a default for people to say, oh, change is hard. Like that's an mm-hmm. excuse, right? Change is yep. hard. We must embrace it like an adventure. And to do that <laughs> yeah. in reality is even harder. What I say to people is that life moves forward. It doesn't move backwards. And the nature of moving forward is change, right? So mm-hmm. no matter how much you want to go back to what you previously know, you can't. So the first thing to recognize is that you can't go back. And even if you went back, it wouldn't be the same. And the example mm-hmm. I use for people is your childhood home. Often people go back to their childhood home and the first thing they notice is how small it is. Yes. Right? They're like, oh my <laughs> so God, true. what happened to my house? It shrunk. And it did not shrink. What happened is that you grew. And yeah. so that is a real concrete example that we are fundamentally changed by our experiences. And as a result, that therefore changes even what we imagine the past to be. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to know that change is not always happy. Right? We say it's hard, but we expect that when we get through it, it's going to 
come out for the best and it's going to be happy and it's going to all work out. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, but sometimes we get through something and we uncover that it's hard on the other side too. That's the difference I say between optimism and faith. Optimism is if I get through this, it will be great. If I can do this, everything will work out just the way I wanted. That's actually not a truism. What's true is Mm -hmm. if you maintain the faith that you can get through it, in hindsight, you may make meaning from it, or it will lead you to someplace other that will take you to another hallway and to another room and to another hallway and possibly to another room. And then after many changes, then in hindsight, you will be able to say, now it makes sense. Now I understand why I endured that. But this assumption that if I get through this difficult place on the other side will be greatness, wonder, happiness Mm -hmm. is, is really a false assumption. And sometimes it happens, but it's not always. Okay. And so here's what, here's what I think about, um, that you're familiar with the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? Of course. Of course. And towards the end, when they are in the the Grail Cave, I don't know what it is, wherever they are, um, the Grail Knight is, um, you know, challenging the people who are present to choose the one, the Holy Grail that they they believe is is the one. And um, one of the first ones that chooses, he drinks and then, what does he do? He diminishes to dust, I think, Um, you know, just sort of implodes. And the Grail Knight says very ominously, he chose poorly. (laughs) 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 I think of that so often. And I think about like what you were just saying. We, one of the things that, you know, I, I suppose it's optimism that does keep us going, like thinking when I choose the right Grail, everything will be okay. Everything will be, you know, puppies and unicorns. But I would caution people that assumes that there's a right and a wrong. Right, right. And in life, the possibility that you are going to be faced with a black and white right or wrong choice is not so often. It's most of your day is not comprised of, do I have to murder this person in self-defense or not? Right. Those (laughs) are those very clear black and white sort of issues. Do I jump in the train in front of a train to save this person or not? Most of our decisions are a series of rights, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're all right on some level. Some are maybe more right than others for this moment. But I tell people, make decisions from the moment you're in, not where you anticipate what you wish it could be. So for example, people say, I'm taking this job, even though it's not the right job, because it will lead me where I want to go. Yeah. There's no guarantee. Yeah. Take the job that is meaningful you now and brings you passion and that will take you where you need to be suffering through a job that you don't want to be in and don't like is a higher chance of getting fired or leaving it than bringing you some dream job that you think will lead you there yeah that does not mean that paying your dues is something different right right? sometimes we have to work hard and pay our dues but the idea that trying to strategically play our lives like a chess game and think that there are wrong and right decisions is a mistake. Yeah. The goal is to say, this is the best decision that I make with the information I have today. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's a few rooms in front of me and I'm going to choose this one. And then I'll see where it leads. Yeah. And then we have to remember that we choose a room, but that doesn't mean we're going to be locked in there forever. 
there's another hallway and there's another door. A hundred percent. That's the thing. Is people think I'm in that room and I get comfortable and I could stay here forever. Mm-hmm. Again, change is inevitable. Life moves forward. Yeah. So it sounds like being able to move through, you know, that, that, oh, no, what if I make the wrong decision is accepting and or understanding, acknowledging that um, there are way more right decisions. And it's and it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of a spectrum. Right. And, and people are paralyzed with fear because they think, what if I make the wrong decision? Mm-hmm. Like you just said, there are very few wrong decisions. There's a series of right decisions and some that seem more right than others. And that's what you have to assess. And when we stop making it so binary, we give ourselves a lot more freedom and permission to make decisions. Because what paralyzes us not to make decisions is the belief that we will make a wrong one. But what prompts us to move forward is the knowledge that there are a lot of good decisions we can make, and we're going to take one of them and see where it leads us. Yeah. One of the most powerful um, sort of mantras that I picked up a long time ago, and this comes from um, Susan Jeffers and Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. She says, like, our biggest, the fear is that we can't handle what happens. And so remembering, um, I can handle the mantra, like, I can handle whatever happens, mm-hmm. has been extremely um, comforting to me. Because um, it reminds me of like my my self agency that that I have the capacity to deal with um, a quote unquote wrong decision, um, you know something that might not feel right in the time, um, and it helps me to see it not so much as wrong, but as just um, as one of my friends plot twist, um, where something just you know doesn't quite go the way you expected, and you're able to kind of step back and say, okay, so now what are my choices? And I love that statement, plot twist, because our life is a series yeah. of plot twists. Isn't it though? And I say to my children, courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Yep. Like Susan Jeffers said, it's this idea that I feel afraid, I'm still going to do it. And whatever comes from it, I will have the courage to face that. And it seems to go align with your previous book, which I think is one of the most brilliant book titles ever. We play on God laughs. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it's a Yiddish proverb. I can't claim ownership of it, but. We Plan God Laughs, I think, was really, my first book was really a statement about that I always thought God was laughing at us. Mm -hmm. And I was so mistaken that God was laughing with us as much as God was weeping with us. And that it wasn't an oppositional relationship. Rather, it was a mutualistic relationship and a partnership. And so when I realized that, my whole view of how I approach difficulties in my life changed because I no longer had God testing me or wanting me to show how talented I am or how, if I'm going to fail, but rather I have God lifting me up. Yeah, yeah. I just got chills just hearing you talk about it that way, um, because that's so so true. Thank you for that. Well, um, thank you so much for for sharing all of this uh, wonderful wisdom with us. And I hope anyone listening who is in the in the hallway, (laughs) or feels like they see a hallway, or they're scared to open the door to a hallway, feels a little bit more um, courage feels in and courage in the sense of um, heart feels feels something in their heart that's that tells them that, that they can do it. And I also hope that if people are in a hallway, that they have the faith to continue Mm -hmm. regardless of what they face because that feeling of despair is real. But the feeling of hope 
only comes when you stay in for the next room and the next hallway. And what people need beyond food and water and shelter is hope. Far more than they need to spare. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much. And I want to close with a question that I ask all of my guests. And uh, as an extrovert, this may or may not sound appealing, (laughs) but... I'll let I'll leave that you tell me that. <laughs> but I've waved a magic wand and you've been granted a three week vacation on Introvert Island. And you can only take three books with you. What would you take with you and why? So before I even answer that, I have to tell you that I spent 10 days in Vipassana meditation with no physical or verbal communication. Mm. So for an extrovert on the third day, I thought I had actually died and gone to hell and spent the day thinking about what I had done to merit this fate. But by the sixth day, I felt an inner peace Mm. that was worth 20 years of therapy, so to speak, because I really saw the power of going within and what it really means to be quiet and to really live with yourself Mm -hmm. in a quiet place. Wow. There, we did not have books at all. So we really had to face our demons. So I feel like it's a pleasure to go to an island and have books because books are my... my, uh, friends, and I love to read. Mm -hmm. So I would say my three books, the first one I would take Mm -hmm. is the Bible, uh, which to the Jews is the Old Testament. For for Christians, it's understood as the Old Testament. We call it the Bible because it is a well of learning. You can, every day your life changes and you have another opportunity to see the world through the lens of the Bible and to understand your life differently. The second thing I would take, which is probably unexpected, Mm -hmm. is Laura Hillebrand's Unbroken, (laughs) because I think it would give me faith and courage to endure whatever. If he could make it, everybody could make it, right? And I think seeing it over and over again with sharks biting at him and starvation, I think that would be a source of inspiration and courage and spirit. And then I believe you said I could take pictures. Yeah, like a, a photo album or... Yeah, I would absolutely take pictures. And I'll tell you, I speak all over the country and I speak to crowds of anywhere from one to 10,000. And I always put a picture of my family in front of me. And I, I don't use notes. I prepare very heavily, but I don't use notes. But I always have a picture in front of me because I remind myself daily mm-hmm. that the center is with God and with my family. And so I would always take those pictures with me because they keep me grounded regardless of what other external affirmations, what other difficulties arise, whatever challenges is, that's what's the center of my world. And sometimes when I speak, I just have to tell you about sometimes when I speak, I'll look down and (laughs) see their smiling faces and I'll have a moment where I lose my train of thought. Yeah. And I think to myself, thank God. Thank God that these people keep me real and humble and make me want to get up every morning. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, what is the best way for people to reach out to you, Sherry, and to learn more about you and your books and what you have to offer? So my books are sold wherever books are sold, online, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and they're on audio. And so you can get them anywhere. The spelling of my name is tricky, so mm-hmm. I always say if you're confused, go to www.sherryhirsch.com, which is S-H-E-R-R-E-H-I-R-S-C-H.com. Lots of letters, lots of vowels, but I <laughs> promise you the books will get, bring you meaning 
where I hope that they will bring you meaning. And I hope that you'll be able to share them with people that you love and that they'll bring them hope as well. Absolutely. Well, you have brought us hope here today. And for that, I am extremely grateful. And um, I'll be sure that those links are included in the show notes so that it's easy for people to just click through and find you. And um, thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy day to share with us. And I'm excited as you continue to take this message out into the world, because I think it's, it's so incredibly needed. Um, now and and always so thank you thank you beth i really enjoy being here thanks again for joining me for this episode today if you have questions or comments i invite you to connect with me at the introvertentrepreneur.com through the feedback or contact me form you can share on facebook or twitter or email me directly at beth at the introvertentrepreneur.com you'll find links to any resources mentioned in this podcast as well as to sherry's Introvert Island book selections in the episode show notes at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. In particular, look for a link to one of my favorite posts that relates directly to this episode titled Lessons from the Liminal Edges of Life. It was also posted as a blogcast, and that was episode 145. One final reminder before we go. I'm hosting the next virtual Networking for Introverts event on Thursday, May 25th, 2017 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Our featured speaker is Kevin Hawk, who will be sharing strategies for leveraging SEO to increase your visibility. Plus, we will spend time in small group networking, and during that time, we get to meet each other, talk about our businesses and our work, and share resources. It has proven to be a really informative and energizing event, and I invite you to join us. The link to register is in the show notes, and of course, you can find it at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. A big thank you to Paul Messing, my podcast producer, and to my assistant, Naja, for the episode show notes. As always, I appreciate your expertise and hard work on behalf of introvert entrepreneurs everywhere. Thank you for listening. And this is Beth Below of The Introvert Entrepreneur. And until we meet again, remember that success is an inside job. Mm-hmm.